Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Tully for History 311. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the Civil Rights Movement. This is kind of a, the high Civil Rights Movement. Uh, talk about the 50s to about 1965 or so. So 1950 or so to 1965 or so. Uh, this is the height of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, whenever I say the Civil Rights Movement, this is probably the stuff you're imagining. If you click on the, uh, go to, click on the PowerPoint on Moodle, you're going to see a picture as you open up of Dr. King doing the March on Washington you know, something we're all familiar with. This is kind of the uh, what you imagine whenever you think about the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, it, when the Civil Rights Movement has been talk, taught to you before, uh, probably seen as something that's just like a, a glorious triumph. You know, Dr. King has a speech in Washington, and everybody's happy, and they jump up and down, and they show candy and stuff, and then everything's wonderful for African Americans. That's not quite what happened. Uh, today we're going to be giving a lot more insight into it, a lot more... A lot more depth, a lot more dynamics to it, and actually get into some of the other names who are greatly involved. Uh, I mean, Dr. King would have been the first to, to tell you he did not do this alone. Um, he was mainly a spokesperson for other people. Uh, a lot of other people were doing a lot of other work. He was mainly done as a spokesperson. Uh, also, the Dr. King of 1963 is not the Dr. King of 1968. He's not really the Dr. King of 1959. Uh, you know, he's a person. He's a human being. You might be familiar with him as an icon, but he's, honest to God, he's a person. He is a person. He's a human being. Uh, same thing with the Civil Rights Movement. A lot more dynamics are going on there. So uh, last class, I really pushed this idea that the Cold War is one of the reasons why uh, the Civil Rights Movement happens. And that's absolutely true. Uh, the pressure of the Cold War, this idea that um, uh, you know, the, the Russians are using the fact that racism exists so prevalently in the United States... As propaganda against the United States and against capitalism, uh, and basically the U.S. feels like their hand is forced, uh, the, sorry, the United States government feels like their hand is forced to do something about racism, do something about segregation and discrimination, is definitely a pressure. But another pressure, if you go over one, this is going to sound like a weird pressure, is just how prosperous people are doing, okay? Uh, the 1950s are a very, very well-timed financially. Uh, you could argue this is the strongest America has ever been financially, is during the 1950s, mainly because everything else is destroyed. Um, everything is destroyed after World War II. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Everything is destroyed outside of the United States. You know, Europe is a quagmire. Asia is a quagmire. Uh, nobody's really able to build much of anything. The United States has no competition for its manufacturing. Ergo, there's a lot of money. A lot, a lot of money. And for a lot of Americans, a lot of white Americans, this is as good as it gets. Uh, home ownership goes way up. By 1960, more than half of Americans own their homes. Uh, that's due to things like the GI Bill and also changes in the federal mortgage um, infrastructure, uh, how mortgages are gotten with things like redlining and things. Uh, what ends up happening is more and more Americans are owning their home. And as more Americans are owning their home, uh, the, the, the material standard of the United States is going way up for white Americans. There's no other way around it. Uh, this is like your Leave it to Beaver type of curse. You've probably never seen Leave it to Beaver. Uh, maybe you've seen Grease or something. Like this kind of 1950s suburbia. Everything's happy. Everything you know, seems calm, uh, very prosperous. Uh, that's the type of mindset they're going to be having. Uh, thing is, that was not the case for most African Americans. Uh, in the 1950s, most African Americans are still facing things like rigid segregation, uh, also, they tend to be a little, a little bit left behind in the economic boom. Uh, they are still doing much better than they were during the Great Depression, though. 
African Americans are doing better than they were in the Great Depression. Uh, still, they have a higher unemployment rate than white Americans do. Unemployment is quite low for white Americans during the 1950s. Uh, still a bit higher for African Americans, actually significant higher for African Americans than it was for white Americans, but nowhere near as high as it was during the Great Depression. Now, I bet you're wondering, how on earth could this cause a civil rights movement to happen? How is this something that's pressuring for civil rights? Well, that's kind of the interesting thing that is the, uh, the kind of the, infra not infrastructure, but the oh, environment going on in the 1950s is that you do have this external pressure of communism, but the thing is the finances are doing good. The economy is doing good. Uh, generally, whenever things are doing tough economically for the United States or honestly any society, uh, people are less inclined to give rights. People are less inclined to expand, give more civil rights, uh, view, quote-unquote, others as somebody who is willing to get, you know, pressured to do things. Uh, generally, in times of economic hardship, uh, things like discrimination tend to go up. They tend to go up. So that's actually what's something that's kind of unique about the 1950s, is that it's, it's prosperous enough to, like, you know, people are feeling, okay, we're not under any direct economic pressure to, like, you know, keep our jobs away from black people taking our jobs. But they also feel susceptible to pressure from something like the Cold War, uh, basically to kind of get rid of Soviet propaganda or uh, kind of show this against what the Soviets say the United States is all about. Now, the road to Brown. Uh, the, the Brown v. Board of Education is considered by many to be kind of the beginning of the civil rights movement in earnest. Uh, the Brown decision comes in 1954, the Supreme Court. Uh, it's a, probably the NAACP's biggest legal victory. It has a long time coming, though. Okay, the NAACP, their legal defense fund, is leading the way. The LDEF, the Legal Defense and Education Fund, uh, they're doing all sorts of things in, 1940, in the 1940s. We talked about this a little bit with guys like Thurgood Marshall, uh, their young legal eagle who later becomes the first black Supreme Court justice. Uh, they're doing all sorts of big-time segregation cases. Uh, they're the epitome of top-down um, civil rights. They're going to the law. They're going to the court system. You know, they figure, hey, we don't have to you know, change all these legislatures' minds. They're either, you know, uh, 48 states' legislatures. Uh, we're 50 states are coming until 1959 with Alaska and Hawaii. Or we, have, we don't have to change the mind of 435 members of Congress. Uh, instead, we just have to, like, you know, get one judge or at the most nine Supreme Court justices uh, to agree with this. And, you know, we can maybe get some more headway. They're having quite a bit of success for things like education. Education is the big one. Uh, housing, employment, politics, things like that. Uh, for instance, the case of Smith versus Allwright comes in 1944. Uh, it basically gets rid of white political primaries. Uh, in many southern states, they only allow white people to vote in the party primaries. Uh, Louisiana's a bit different, so I'm not going to bring it up, but like in another state, let's say like in Texas or a Georgia or something, uh, they would have white political primaries. White political primaries... We're basically the Democratic Party, which is pretty much the party that does it because the Democratic Party is the only party in the South at this time period. Uh, the Democratic Party will run their slate of, uh, of you know candidates, and they basically are fighting amongst each other, and only white voters are allowed to vote. Uh, the reason they're able to get away with this is because they say it is a party thing. Uh, a political party is viewed as a private organization. Uh, political parties are not in the Constitution. Theoretically, if you have a private industry, a private club, 
You can let whoever you want into it. So they're having only white people be elected, in, sorry, only white people voting in these political primaries because they say only white people can be members of the Democratic Party. Uh, this goes all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says it is unconstitutional uh, because basically African Americans don't realistically have a shot of making their own political party because they're such a minority. Uh, they should be allowed to vote in the political uh, primaries, especially because in most southern states, there is no Republican Party, and the uh, Democratic par uh, Party primary serves as the de facto uh, election for the entire state. Uh, basically, they said by doing this, they're pretty much not allowing African Americans the right to vote. That's in violation of the 15th Amendment. NAACP has some success. Uh, some of the lawyers that kind of get involved in this, Baker Motley is involved with it. Uh, there's some other black lawyers in the South. Um, Baker Motley, she's interesting because she's a lady. Uh, she's actually the second black woman to attend Columbia's law school. Uh, she gets involved in the legal defense, uh, legal, de that was weird. Uh, legal defense and education fund. What was that? I don't know what that sound was. That's weird. Anyway, she gets involved with it. Uh, mainly she starts going after graduate schools. I mentioned last time about how that was a very popular target for the NAACP uh, because grad schools, there are very few of them in any given state. Uh, for instance, in the state of Louisiana, I believe there are only two medical schools. There's LSU Med School and Tulane Med School. Uh, law schools, there are three, I think. Uh, there's LSU, Tulane, and Loyola. Um, I might be missing one in there, but there aren't too, too many. There, there's, oh, Southern, so, of course, Southern. Uh, Southern's a law school as well. That, okay, that, does, that kind of highlights what I was going to say, but um, in, in most states, there are only like one or two law or medical schools. Uh, because of separate but equal, you're supposed to be providing a equal law and medical school for black students. Uh, basically, the NAACP is, is betting that most states are going to find that's way too expensive, because especially starting something like a medical school, that is a ton of money uh, for a relatively small group of people. They said it'd probably just make more financial sense for the states to just allow black people into the schools. And by the way, I should mention, that's also a pretty powerful argument against segregation, is basically you're trying to tell the states and all these other industries, hey, you can actually save a bunch of money if you just, black and white, if you just let black and white people go together. That, that's one way they try to push it for states to say that this is a, a physically smart move. You know, it's a way for states to save money. Uh, big case of Spurwell versus the Board of Regents at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, that basically allow that basically says that um, Oklahoma's way of getting around it, if you go over one, you'll see a picture. Actually, two. Well, in a while, you'll see a picture of a black student sitting at a desk outside of a classroom in a college. Uh, that's how Oklahoma got around it. As they said, basically, we don't want black and white people sitting in the same classroom together. Uh, they argued that not being in the same classroom is uh, causing an unequal education because the professor can't see your hand, you're not interacting with the other students, things like that. That works out pretty well. Uh, same thing with Sweat v. Painter. That's uh, University of Texas. Uh, same sort of thing. These sort of grad school things. If you go over one side, you will see... Uh, Baker Motley, and, and she is actually having some success in the South, uh, not when you get to undergrad education. Uh, for instance, there she is at the University of Alabama trying to get them to admit a black student. That doesn't go too, too hot. 
Still, the Brown decision is coming. I should also mention that when a black lawyer does go to the South, it's usually not that great for them. Uh, Leon A. Ransom has some uh, kind of hairy experiences in the South. Uh, likewise, um, Constance uh, Baker Motley, who we were just talking about, uh, she often had to stay in flop houses for uh, trials, which is a flop house is not even a hotel. It's like a, a tenement house. It's almost a little bit like halfway house or something. Uh, transient people are going through there. Not a very respectable place to stay. Certainly a, a place that is viewed for as, as for a woman as being a very uh, morally dubious place to stay. Not morally dubious, but just not a safe place to stay. They're not very safe places. And plus, she's a lawyer, and this is a very low-class place to stay, but that's the only place that would allow her to some of these places. Uh, even some of the hotels that did cater to African-Americans uh, would not allow her in because they thought she was causing bad attention. Uh, that's another thing we're going to be, you need to realize about the civil rights movement, particularly when we get into something like uh, Freedom Summer. Uh, a lot of African-Americans in the South are kind of ambivalent towards the civil rights movement uh, because they feel that they're going to be the recipients of the backlash. Uh, you know, oh, it's all great for these fancy lawyers and, you know, these Harvard and Columbia-educated people to come in for just a trial for a few months. As soon as they leave, we're the ones who are going to get the backlash. And you're going to see that a lot with the civil rights movement, is that the people who live in some of these very racist and segregated areas, the African-Americans, uh, sometimes they're the ones who are least inclined to really get involved. Uh, they're like, yeah, you know, it... it, it you're just rocking the boat, you're just causing trouble, uh, it's not going to end well for us. Still, Motley and her crew, Motley crew, oh, I just saw what I did there, they get involved in a lot of other cases. Uh, Briggs v. Elliott's another one. Uh, that is actually uh, challenging school desegregation in the South. Uh, it is uh, challenging in the South. Later on, it gets wrapped into the bigger um, class action case that will become Brown v. Board of Education. Now, Brown v. Board of Education is about Topeka, Kansas. In fact, the full name is Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Uh, Kansas is not quite a southern state. It's not quite a southern state. As you recall, it was the subject of some African-American uh, migration because of the exodusters. Uh, there is a... They're definitely a minority, but there's a, there's a definite uh, black population in Kansas during this time period. And it involves one little girl involves one little girl by the name of Lydia Brown, Linda Brown. Linda Brown, uh, she is the perfect test case. I believe she just passed away, actually. Uh, I believe she just, just passed away. Uh, basically, her dad, and, and, and the thing you need to realize about the early civil rights movement, and actually pretty much this entire lecture today, is this idea of respectability. Uh, the civil rights people, they are not trying to rock the boat. That is, in fact, their uh, least... <laughs> they are not trying to be upset the, uh, you know, the, the white status quo. Uh, they're not trying to show themselves as agitators or communists or anything other than good Americans. In fact, one of the reasons why Lydia Brown, Linda Brown is chosen as the test case, kind of being the spokes case, is because it's such a clean, open-and-shut case and also because of the character of her father. Uh, her father was a veteran. He was a veteran. He was also employed. Uh, he was a, I believe he's a part-time janitor and also a part-time minister, as I recall. As I recall. Uh, Oliver Brown is his name. Uh, he's a good test case. Uh, the parents are married. Uh, a lot of things that, you know, should not 
be very important when you're just talking about the law, the early civil rights movement is keenly aware of. Uh, the NAACP is trying to take cases that are like blatant uh, segregation and discrimination, and also where the, uh, the character of the plaintiffs cannot be impeached. Uh, that's something you're going to see a lot in various times. And uh, this is not just a black and white thing. It's not just a race thing. But uh, oftentimes, uh, they will put the character of the person on trial, or the victim sometimes. I mean, you could argue, as I record this, the, uh, the, uh, the trial for the officer that killed George Floyd is going on right now. And they're talking about George Floyd's character uh, as part of it. And that's something that does happen from time to time. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? That's up for you to decide. I'm just saying it's a thing. Uh, they're trying to pick a case that is so slam dunk, so open and shut. The fact that Linda Brown has to travel like, you know, an hour and 20 minutes to go to a black school where a white school is just seven blocks away that she could walk to. It's clear evidence of discrimination. It's clearly not separate but equal. Uh, you know, she is going off riding this bus for hours at a time where she could just walk to school, you know, be there within 10 minutes. Um, her father is you know, employed. He's he, no criminal record. Honorable discharge from the military. Uh, remember this World War II idea that I talked about last class? World War II is all in this, just this idea of, you know, we're veterans, we serve respectably. And that's what Oliver Brown, Linda Brown's dad, is trying to get into. Now, this case makes its way through the appellate courts and the federal courts, and as it's going higher and higher, it gets more cases uh, wrapped into it. Uh, by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, I believe there's God, like seven or eight different class action cases rolled up in this, all kind of agreeing on the same thing. Uh, the reason they just go with Brown is because Linda Brown is, she's only six years old, and mainly the character of Oliver Brown. You know, he's a veteran, uh, employed, you know, his affiliation with the church seems good. Uh, Thurgood Marshall is the one who argues this in front of the Supreme Court. That is no surprise to anybody. Uh, Marshall has been honing his skill for quite a while. He's the most uh, accomplished litigator that the NAACP has. Uh, not too surprising whatsoever. He's the one who's going to argue this case. Chief Justice of the time is a man by the name of Earl Warren. Now, Earl Warren had been the governor of California. In fact, he had been the conservative governor of California. Might be weird to think about now, but at this time, uh, actually until like Reagan, uh, Calif actually, sorry, uh, not Reagan, Clinton, Clinton in 92, uh, California was a pretty reliable red state, and uh, it wasn't too surprising that it had a conservative governor. Um, in fact, uh, Ronald Reagan was governor of California for quite a while, too. It's where Richard Nixon comes from, and Earl Warren kind of fits into this mold as governor. He's very conservative. He is appointed by Dwight Eisenhower to become Chief Justice of the Supreme Court uh, under this idea that he's going to be a very conservative and moderate force. Uh, that's all show I said, Minson, that Eisenhower is super moderate. He's not really conservative. In fact, a lot of Republicans, uh, Eisenhower is a Republican, uh, a lot of Republicans don't like him because they don't think he's conservative enough, but Eisenhower is very much a moderate, don't-rock-the-boat type of individual. Now, this, this case, uh, Earl Warren kind of surprises everybody. Uh, he argues that this is actually wrong. Uh, separate but equal cannot work. Uh, it's a 9-0 to zero, uh, victory, which is you know, basically there's nobody dissents, and it's really pressured by Earl Warren, who writes the opinion of the court, basically saying that separate but equal is a bunch of hooey, and it's, it's dumb, and we're going to revoke Jim Crow. 
Now, had they just gone on case law, it should have been an open and shut case for keeping up segregation because Plessy v. Ferguson was saying the same sort of thing. However, things change in time, and basically Earl Warren is checking the tenor of the country. He realizes that the Supreme Court was making a racist decision back then, and he says, you know what, that decision was racist. <laughs> times have changed. Uh, you know, the more conservative thing to do is actually to save us money by not having us build a black school and a white school. Uh, goodbye, Jim Crow. Uh, Eisenhower is actually not a fan of this. Eisenhower <laughs> later said that appointing Earl Warren to the Supreme Court was, quote, the biggest damn fool mistake I ever made in my life, end quote. Now, here's the great thing. Okay, so Brownie Board comes down in 1954. Everybody's happy. Everybody's, you know, doing cartwheels. The main problem is that it doesn't say when it's going to be implemented. It's not very practical. It just says, we need to get rid of segregation. Hooray! But then they're like, okay, how are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? What's the incentive to do it? And that comes in Brown 2. Uh, it's the next year, 1955. Uh, Brown v. Board of Education 2, the, the sequel, is decided. It's decided, basically, how are we going to do it? What practical steps are we going to have to, you know, implement desegregation of the schools. And in some ways it's a success, but in a lot of ways it's frustrating and kind of shows one of the big problems with, uh, depending on top-down civil rights action. Basically, okay, it orders that the, all, you know, schools that get money from the federal government, which is pretty much all of them, uh, all public schools, need to desegregate with all deliberate speed. That's the frustrating freeze. Yeah, now theoretically, it, 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 you know, it wants to be prompt with all deliberate speed. The problem is that is a very indefinite point in time. You know, if let's say you ask somebody out on a date, let's say, you know, you, there's this girl or guy you're interested in, and you're like, okay, you know what? I, I'm going to go up to Mary Sue and I'm going to ask her out. And she doesn't say yes or no, but she's like, okay, I'll go out with you at some point. So I guess it's technically a yes. And you're like, yay, you're excited. And then you realize, oh, wait, I never decided when I'm actually going to go out with her. So you go ask her, hey, when are we going out? And she says, with all deliberate speed. And you're like, okay, is that going to be a Friday or a Saturday or a Thursday? And she's like, with all deliberate speed. That's pretty much what the Supreme Court does here. It says, we definitely should desegregate, but we're not going to say exactly when we're going to do it. Uh, we're not going to say when we have to do it. They, they say that's not the Supreme Court's decision. That's something that should go to the states or Congress or maybe the president or somebody who's not necessarily the Supreme Court. Remember, the Supreme Court doesn't enforce the laws. They just uh, rule with the constitutionality of the laws. This really upsets Eisenhower. Now, Eisenhower is an interesting cat. Eisenhower is an interesting cat. Uh, he is not really racist. He is not really racist, but he's also not really a uh, real supporter of civil rights-y stuff. Very moderate for the time period. Uh, Someone like Harry Truman. Uh, Harry Truman was a bit more radical in civil rights. He's a bit more pressing for civil rights. Eisenhower doesn't have that. Eisenhower, he like, look, Eisenhower legitimately has some sympathies for African Americans. You know, he did command some during the war. He, he thinks they're fine. Um, you know, he's, he's okay with there being, uh, desegregated units. In fact, he does desegregate a lot of army bases, also desegregates Washington, D.C. Uh, he's not a racist. He's not somebody who's against civil rights by any stretch of the imagination. 
but he's not really one for the federal government having too much authority. And he says, look, if we pressure this too hard, uh, we're going to have a lot of backlash. Eisenhower has sympathies on both sides. I mean, part of him being a moderate is that he can see both sides of the issue. Uh, yes, he definitely, you know, he has sympathies for African-Americans trying to gain, you know, independence and freedom and equality. But he also sees sympathies towards the southern states who he's like, you know what, they feel like something's being shoved down their throat they don't want. You know, if we, if we pressure this too hard, we're going to have a backlash. However, the civil rights proponents are like, if we don't pressure this, it's never going to happen. And pretty much what Eisenhower ends up doing is he doesn't push too, too hard for enforcement. He says, I'll let the states do it on their own time. You know, eh, I'm just going to be kind of, uh, you know, chill about it. Chill about it. Uh, Now, most black Americans are like, this is frustrating. You know, we want this to be done immediately. Uh, Most white Americans are actually kind of frustrated about it, too. Well, racist white Americans are frustrated about it because they feel like, you know, it should be never and if you say you, we should do it slowly or gradually, it's still just as bad. Uh, six states do proceed with desegregation uh, fairly quickly on. Uh, these are not deep south states. These are kind of like, you know, Midwest states, northern states. Uh, weirdly enough, some of the states you might think wouldn't have problems with desegregation have some of the biggest problems with desegregation, like Massachusetts. Uh, Boston has major problems with desegregation. Actually, so to this day. Uh, Boston has got bad race stuff. Anyway. Uh, most moderate politicians are urging calm. They don't want people to pressure too much. Um, you know, schools are, are an issue that people get very um, sensitive about, especially when you're talking about children. You know, everybody wants their child to have the best education possible. So when they have this idea that, you know, oh, you know, having a desegregated school might cause my child's education to suffer, uh, you know, some people are understandably... Um, you know, they're upset about that. Now, does it cause the education to suffer? Actually, by all studies, no. Uh, generally, uh, more desegregation means better educational outcomes for pretty much everybody. But still, there's all these racist perceptions that black people are stupid or they have diseases. That's a, that's one that lasts forever, too. It's the fact that uh, African-Americans have different diseases than white Americans, and if you get the races together, uh, like white people will die because black people have germs and stuff. Uh, very racist. Lasts for quite a while. Still, most people are wanting to involve, uh, stop full-scale conflict. They don't want huge backlash. That's honestly what Eisenhower wants more than anything else. Is like, I don't want to have a huge backlash. You know, we just went through a war. And we went through the Korean War. So let's, uh, let's just kind of chill down for a sec. That's not what happens because there is massive white resistance almost immediately. Almost immediately after Brown v. Board, even though the schools had not been really desegregated yet, there is massive, and I mean massive, resistance all across the South. Uh, white supremacy, a lot of places start becoming more um, adamant about that. Uh, there's this fear that the federal government, this is federal overreach, is going to go into the South and they're going to just basically take over the South uh, kind of like a revamp of the Civil War, something like that, starts being pushed very much. Uh, the Reverend Jerry Falwell, the Reverend Jerry Falwell, who you might know possibly later on for what he does with the moral majority, later founds Liberty University, which is still pretty important in Republican circles. Uh, he actually gets a start as somebody who's against desegregation, and he says it's for biblical reasons. Uh, 
I don't really want to get into exactly how he says it's unbiblical because it gets kind of squeaky and nasty. Uh, but basically, he's like, no, 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 no. You know, black people are kind of different than white people. Uh, you know, there's like a religious nature. If we get like, it's like, you know, mixing believers and non-believers, it, it, it's messed up. He pretty much disregards the long history of African-American Christianity. Also, uh, there's a Mississippi senator by the name of James Eastman, uh, pretty much says that the Brown decision is a, quote, a monstrous crime. Openly advocating for the state of Mississippi and the Mississippians, white Mississippians, to pretty much, you know, act in, um, against the law. Don't follow the law. And when you have, like, senators and congresspeople straight up saying, don't follow the law, uh, people tend to, you know, <laughs> uh, follow it, perhaps. Uh, do we have elements of that nowadays? I mean, you could maybe argue that, like, uh, the politicians who aren't, like, following mass compliance laws after the during the quarantine, that could be part of that. Also, Strom Thurmond becomes, like, the real uh, center point for a lot of this... Uh, you know, anti-desegregation backlash, pro-segregation stuff. Uh, remember, he's the one who ran as a Dixiecrat in 1948. Uh, later on, he's going to give the largest filibuster in U.S. Senate history. I believe he goes on for 27 hours against the Civil Rights Bill. Against the Civil Rights Bill. Uh, he is senator until his hundreds. I'm not making that up. He Legitimately, he is well into his 90s, well into his 100s. It's in the 1990s when he finally dies. Um, he's senator for South Carolina well into his hundreds. But what happens in most places, though, is white citizens' councils. Uh, white citizens' councils form across the South. And the key word there is white and citizens. These are not government officials. These are like kind of like a... a ooh, what's the word I'm looking for? A... Um, Business council, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, you know how, like, uh, municipal league, perhaps? God, it's on the tip of my tongue. But, like, kind of these organizations where, you know, the different businesses and well-to-do citizens in a town come together for a better bit of civic pride, civic appreciation. Uh, same sort of thing. Basically, these are not in the law, all right? Remember, that's the one way to get out of this, is that, you know, the Brown v. Board of Education is pushing for the enforcement of desegregation through the government. Uh, but as we talked about, a lot of segregation was not actually in law. It was just by practice. Even in the South, where Jim Crow did exist, and there was segregation by law, there's also an equal, if not more, amount of kind of informal, uh, not desegregation, segregation done by practice. These citizen councils meet. They want to preserve, quote-unquote, the Southern way of life use political and economic pressure and power to basically make sure that uh, compliance never really happens. Now, what do they actually do? Well, they do a lot of things. Um, one of the most common things they do is start making secular uh, academies. Secular academies. Uh, these are non-religious private schools, uh, pretty much explicitly made to remain white only. Uh, they're called segregation academies, there's a lot of them. Uh, the, the one that I'm most familiar with is in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, Jackson Academy. Uh, it was formed in 1956 as a segregation academy. They were straight up about it. Uh, it's a private school. It's not a religious private school. Um, you, being from South Louisiana, you're probably most familiar with something like Catholic schools, which are private schools, but they're done for religious purposes. 
private private academies, these segregationist academies, um, they are pretty much done just for white students, and some of them still exist. Uh, they not as segregation academies, but uh, pretty much in every southern town, if you find like the quote unquote good private school that doesn't have religious backing, it's probably a segregation academy. Not too many in uh, South Louisiana because of the prevalence of Catholic schools, but if you go to other places, you'll definitely find them. Now, another thing that really gets them to the white resistance... Oh, yeah, they also uh, start turning restaurants into private clubs. I should also mention that. Um, Private clubs, uh, basically the idea being, uh, you, you know, you cannot, you know, bar somebody from entering a restaurant based upon their race. But if it's a private club, well, you know what? You can, you know, only members can join. And you can let anybody be in whatever private organization you want. And if you don't want black people, well, that's your own private business because it's your club. That happens with a lot of restaurants. Uh, Both my parents grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, Shreveport is another town that has pretty strong race and segregation stuff. Uh, Both my parents are white. Uh, But they remember, I remember them telling me about uh, how one of the restaurants around, actually a lot of the restaurants, they, they had like a little membership league where uh, a white person could quote unquote join the, the membership of several restaurants. And uh, you could just go there. And I think the, the fee was cheap. It was like a dollar or two a year. Like the membership was a joke. It was literally just to make sure that black people can't come in. Uh, same thing with country clubs. Same thing with country clubs. Your first country clubs start really coming around in this time period. Uh, for facility purposes, primarily. I uh, remember you cannot, you know, exclude people out of a neighborhood. But if it's a country club, you have to be a member, and the members, you know, the club can decide its own membership. Uh, same thing for things like golf courses and swimming pools. Uh, before this time, most towns had civic, you know, municipal golf courses and municipal swimming pools. In fact, swimming pools were super common. Uh, once they started to try to desegregate them, most towns filled in their swimming pools with concrete. And most, uh, you know, country clubs started building swimming pools that were only allowed to its members. Remember, they can't enforce something through private property. If it's a private club, theoretically, anything goes. Uh, The big thing that kind of links it all together, though, is the Southern Manifesto. This is a document written basically, basically saying that all these Southern congressmen, all these Southern politicians, they all agree... They all agree that basically we will enforce segregation. They say that Brown v. Board has gone too far. Uh, The Supreme Court is is overreached. This is big government trying to be big government. We're going to preserve segregation by all accords. Uh, Pretty much every Southern politician signed this except for two. Uh, Pretty much the only Southern senators who did not sign this uh, are two names you might want to know because, well, they're both kind of important. They're both historically significant. Uh, The first one is Albert Gore Sr. Uh, Albert Gore Sr. is the senator from Tennessee. That name might be familiar to you because his son, Albert Gore Jr., was vice president, ran for president in 2000. That's that guy. Uh, Basically, Al Gore's dad was another guy by the name of Al Gore, who was a senator from Tennessee. Uh, The bigger name and kind of the the more surprising one who didn't uh, write, who didn't sign this, would be Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson of Texas... Uh, Lyndon Johnson is going to be viewed as a big-time race traitor. Um, we'll just talk about that him later. Actually, we're going to get on him for a little bit today. But Johnson is viewed as a race traitor for what he does regarding the Southern Manifesto. Uh, Southern states try to outlaw the NAACP, uh, try to make um, try to make it illegal. 
Uh, some states even file lawsuits to get rid of the organization. Uh, they feel if you get rid of the NAACP, you're going to get rid of all civil rights things. Um, it's agitators that are doing this. They're upsetting the, the balance within these states. You're going to hear things like, you know, our black folks are happy. Uh, you hear that quite a bit in a lot of these southern states. Uh, basically perpetuating this idea that African Americans uh, are happy with the status quo as it is. Now this gets to what I would consider the real, real beginning of the Civil Rights Movement. The real beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, in the midst of all this, happens in 1957. Uh, that would be the lynching of Emmett Till. Emmett Till is a case that is a very sad case. It's also a case that really uh, shocks a nation. Because by the time we get to the 50s, most people are talking about lynching in the past tense. It was, oh yeah, that's something we used to do decades ago. We don't do that anymore. You know, we, we, we've moved past it. We don't have to lynch anymore. Um, that's kind of this idea behind it. Also has elements of the Great Migration in it because Emmett Till, he lives in Chicago, but he is visiting some relatives in Monet, Mississippi. Yes, I know it's spelled money, but it's pronounced Monet. It's Mississippi, let him be. So here's what happens. 14-year-old Emmett Till, he's a young kid. He's 14. He's from Chicago, but his parents are from Mississippi. Uh, but this time period, he has a single mother. His mom is from Mississippi. He's visiting in the summer, visiting relatives. Visiting relatives in, right outside Monet, Mississippi. Uh, this is not too surprising. You know, most black folks in Chicago from this time period have relatives around Mississippi or other parts of the South. Remember the Great Migration. And so, as young boys are wont to do, he's, he's talking big to his cousins. You know, he's talking about how big of a big shot he is in, in Chicago. Um, you know, how, like, race relations are different in Chicago. Uh, he, you know, is he just talking big? I don't know. But he says something about, like, yeah, in Chicago, I can talk to white women all the time. I talk to white girls. It's no big deal. Uh, just saying how much better things are in Chicago. Maybe he's talking it up. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I've been a 14-year-old boy. And, and I, I, I remember, you know, talking... Yeah, writing checks with my mouth that my butt might not be able to cash. So at, they're doing this at this store, which is owned by a white couple, which is owned by a white couple. And basically one of his cousins or one of his cousin's friends uh, dares him to talk to the proprietor of the, of the store. It's a woman. Her husband owns a store. She's standing behind the, the counter. Now, what ends up happening, we don't know exactly. Uh, we don't exactly know exactly what was said, what wasn't said. Uh, by all accounts, he did not touch her. He, it was nothing too inappropriate. Uh, he probably said something like, hello, baby, or hey there, baby, or whistled at her. Uh, there have been also uh, evidence that, you know, Ill might have had a stutter, and so his mother told him to whistle, you know, to like, calm his breath before talking to somebody. Maybe the woman misinterpreted uh, what, what, she's, what was said as, 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 you know, as flirting or being fresh when it wasn't. Uh, in fact, later on, the woman did recant and say that, she, you know, Emmett Till did not say anything inappropriate to her, and he certainly did not touch her. At this time, that was not, the, that was not reported as the case. What does end up happening is that Emmett Till has some sort of interaction with this woman and leaves. Um, that Later that night, the woman's husband and some of his friends, uh, who are not clan members or anything like that, they're just racist white folks, uh, they go to the house where Till is staying, uh, demanding to see him. Demanding to see him, demanding that he come out. Uh, basically, I believe Till's uncle is like, hey, maybe we could talk our way through this. 
you know, he's just a child. He's only 14. Nothing happened. Uh, the woman is now saying that he, like, touched her or groped her or something inappropriate like that. She later recant decades later and say none, none of that ever actually happened. Uh, what does end up happening, though, is that Till is taken out, he is beaten, and he is ultimately lynched. He is ultimately lynched. And this is a very nasty one. He's tortured, killed, murdered, 14 years old, has no idea what's going on. Uh, th this case goes to trial because, hell, it is a murder. Uh, basically, it's an all-white jury. Uh, the, the defendants claim, you know, nobody can prove that they did or didn't do it. Uh, that's what gets them off, ultimately, is that nobody can prove that it was done. Uh, the day after this, the, uh, the verdict comes in, they get an interview with a magazine where they pretty much stay straight up. They don't pretty much stay. They straight up say, yeah, we killed him. They said, yes, we killed him, where their entire, you know, thing for the trial was, we don't know who killed him. You can't prove it was us. Uh, the day after they get uh, declared innocent, they say, yeah, we did it. And they can't be tried again because of double jeopardy laws. Now, what Emmett Till's mom does, which is pretty interesting, is that she makes sure that there is an open casket. All right, She makes sure there is an open casket. In fact, if you go over one slide, you'll see a picture of Emmett Till and his mom. There she is. Uh, there he is, too. Uh, if you want to Google pictures of the casket, you can. I don't include it because it's pretty graphic. Um, you know, it is the open casket of a 14-year-old boy who's been brutally beaten and, you know, murdered. Uh, but if you if you haven't seen it before, you can Google it. Not hard to find. Uh, she makes sure this is open, and she makes sure that picture is published in every black newspaper she can get. Uh, Jet and Ebony, well, Ebony doesn't exist at this time period, but Ebony Magazine, sorry, Jet Magazine, ugh, sorry, Ebony. God, I was going to confuse. John Johnson's first one was Ebony. Actually, Negro Digest was the first one. Anyway, John Johnson, uh, that's one of the reasons why Ebony and later Jet become bigger magazines, is because he publishes this. Pretty much every black newspaper, like the, you know, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Chicago Defender, they publish pictures of Emmett Till's uh, of face, pretty much, of, of his corpse, his bloated corpse in the, in the casket. Basically, Emmett Till's mother is saying, look what they did to my son. You know, he, he, even if he did touch her, even if he did touch her, which he didn't, but, you know, is it worth lynching somebody for whistling? Is it worth lynching somebody for saying, hey, baby? Even if he did. By the way, he probably didn't. Uh, he did whistle. He did whistle. Why he whistled, we don't know. Uh, it, you know, is it worth it? Is it really worth this? Is it truly worth killing somebody for maybe whistling, maybe not whistling? And this really galvanizes support for the civil rights movement. Like, this is one of those things where this new World War II generation, this younger generation is like, hey, you know, we thought that lynching was, some, you know, lynching is something that happened, you know, decades ago. And they're killing this 14-year-old for no reason. This really shows a lot of support. Likewise, it makes a lot of white Americans who will also see the picture realize, oh, my God, like, this is gruesome. Is it really, really worth it? Now, are there other elements to Emmett Till's death? Absolutely. I mean, there's the age element of it, the fact that he was so young, the fact that details are so sparse about it, the fact that it happens in Mississippi. And, and in fact, there's some folks in Mississippi who tell Emmett Till's mother, please don't publish a photograph. You know, there's going to be backlash against us. You know, once all these NAACP, once all the civil rights people leave, we're going to be the recipients of the backlash. What does happen, though, is that a lot more interest, a lot more 
activity, energy starts coming around the civil rights movement. A lot more local protests start coming. Uh, one of the early ones, too, is also the Montgomery Bus Boycott. Montgomery Bus Boycott, very well-organized uh, boycott that happens. Also the first time in the country really gets to know Dr. King. Uh, Montgomery, Alabama is the capital of Alabama. That's not a surprise. has a pretty sizable black population of about 45,000 that is primarily segregated. Okay, now, why is this important with the buses? Here we go. Okay, buses in southern cities primarily exist for, you know, there's public transportation. But in the 50s, most southern cities that had public transit was primarily written, ridden by black people. All right, black folks were most of the folks on public transit in the cities in the south in this time period. Most southern people of means rode, uh, rode their own separate car. What is, oh, that's what's wrong. Sorry, my microphone messed up. Uh, mo most people of means, you know, black or white, really, uh, would ride their own car. Because of economic inequalities, uh, most white people are riding the car. So basically, you have a bus system, which is, you know, they have to pay fares. So most of their money comes from fares. And it's primarily servicing African Americans. Actually, it's mainly servicing African American women. Uh, there is evidence that a lot of Southern uh, bus systems, a lot of Southern bus systems exist to get black women who work as domestics, uh, maids, think of something like the help, uh, from the black area town to the white area town. That makes up most of the ridership of a lot of these buses. And Montgomery is no uh, exception to this rule. Now, you know, Edie Nixon is a very important name. He lives in NAACP in Montgomery, Alabama. He's the one who really does a lot of the grassroots organization here. Basically, he wants to make sure that the buses, and by the way, he's not the only one. There's a lot of folks in Montgomery who think it is stupid that the buses are segregated, particularly when so much of the ridership is black. You know, why are you splitting the buses in half when most of the people who ride the bus are black and also most of the people who pay the fares are black? They're like, it just doesn't make financial sense. You should allow black and white people on at the same time. In fact, honestly, it's probably going to be primarily black people on the bus at any given time anyway. So you know what? Just make it, you know, why are we having these separate sections? Particularly when white people don't ride it as much as black people. In fact, that's one of the reasons why they think that the Montgomery bus boycott is going to work is because so much of the ridership is black and they're going to lose fares very much so. So E.D. Nixon, he heads the NAACP in Montgomery, also the Montgomery Voters League. Um, you know, they're really trying to push, you know, all these, this idea of desegregating the buses. Uh, however, most of the elected officials who are white in Montgomery, they're not really listening to it. They don't really feel the need to it. Uh, there is an idea to attack segregation. Uh, weirdly enough, one of the most interesting test cases that comes on early is a test of uh, the test of Cla uh, Claudette Colvin. Uh, Claudette Colvin, in 1955, she's a high school student. She's about 15 years old. She does not give up her seat for a white woman. She does not give up her seat for a white woman. And I bet you're wondering, huh, that's like a year or so before Rosa Parks. I wonder why, well, not a year or so, but that's a little bit before Rosa Parks. I wonder why, you know, we don't hear anything about her. Well, the thing with Claudette Colvin was that it turns out she was pregnant and not married. And the NAACP was like, ooh, we're all about respectability. You know, a pregnant, unwed, single mother is not exactly 
going to be uh, a very sympathetic case. You know, they could they could destroy her character. They could just you know assault her. You know, is it is it warranted or not? That's a different story for a different time. But still, they would just land blast her. Now, now we get to Rosa Parks. Here we go. Okay, Rosa Parks. Is Rosa Parks a plant? That is a question I cannot give you a straight answer to because it's complicated. Rosa Parks is pretty much everything that Claudette Colvin was not. Rosa Parks is married. Rosa Parks is 43 years old in this time period, so she's pretty well established. She's got a job. She's a seamstress. And she's also very involved in the NAACP. She also serves as secretary for the NAACP. And she's also attended several workshops on nonviolent protests. I should also mention that there was an earlier bus boycott in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, that was only for a couple days, that the leaders of Montgomery, they talked to the people in Baton Rouge and were like, hey, how'd y'all do this? How'd y'all organize it? Talked about how they got carpools together, uh, made deals with the cab companies to lower the fares for black riders. So is it a test case? Is this a total plant? I can't tell you straight one way or the other. What I can tell you is on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks was sitting in the white section of the bus. By the way, I should mention that the bus company was no fool. They realized that most of their ridership was black, so they let black people sit in the white section until a white person came, then the black person had to move to the black section. Uh, basically, a man came, was like, hey, you're in the white section. Rosa Parks was like, you know what? No, screw you. I'm going to sit. Now, was she told to do it? Did she do it of her own fruition? Was she not thinking about the cause of this time period? I can't say straight. Uh, the best thing I can probably say, that the most realistic thing, is that this was this was not fully planned by the NAACP. However, when she did it, they sprung into action with a predetermined plan, if that makes sense. Uh, it's pretty evident that Parks kind of chose it on her own. She was not done in the direction of anybody else. Uh, but she was aware that it, were she to do this, should be a very sympathetic cause, a sympathetic case. Boycott begins. Uh, there's flyers. There's word of mouth. It's fairly well organized. Uh, that's one thing I will say about the Montgomery bus boycott. Fairly well organized. They're getting involved with the various churches, other black businesses. Uh, they start up carpools, start working with cab companies. Uh, this was something that was pretty much ready to go whenever the time needed to be. Uh, the boycott happens on December 5th, four days after Rosa Parks is told to leave her, uh, her seat. Um, Nixon joins with this. And basically, Dixon knows, sorry, Nixon knows, E.D. Nixon, I don't know how I said Dixon, E.D. Nixon, he knows he's not the best public speaker. He's looking for somebody who could be a good figurehead for the movement. And they pick a great figurehead for the movement. That'd be Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who right in this time period is head of... Ebenezer Baptist Church in, in uh, Montgomery. At this time, Dr. King is 26 years old, so he is quite young. Actually, he's very young in this time period. Uh, he's a very good speaker. He's good looking. He has a good family. Uh, he has a wife and kids. He is very stable. And he is chosen by Nix, Dix, uh, Nixon to really lead this movement. Uh, Justin Montgomery, later on, he's become kind of the figurehead for most of the civil rights movement. Let's talk about Dr. King for a second. Uh, he is young in this time period. I cannot iterate that enough. Actually, he's always young. He dies when he's 39 years old. Um, as I write this, as I speak this to you, I'm only 36. 
which I feel quite young, and Dr. King had already accomplished way more, whatever he was my age, than I ever will. Uh, he is quite young, uh, fairly unknown as himself. That being said, his father is super known. Daddy King, Martin Luther King Sr., he's a big-time, big, big-time, super, 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 super well-known uh, pastor from uh, Atlanta. Uh, Dr. King, Daddy King, Papa King, whatever you want to call him, King Sr., super well-known, one of the more famous black pastors within the black church, very, very well-known. Um, his dad was very big on education, civil rights. Uh, King does go to various schools. He gets a PhD in theology. It's the doctor from Boston University. Uh, it's kind of interesting. If you read his writings when he's a student, he is kind of, uh, I don't want to say ambivalent, but he's kind of, you know, I, you can tell he, he doubts his faith at times. He's like, you know what, maybe, maybe there's, you know, maybe there is a God, maybe there isn't. Likewise, he, he kind of has some wavering feelings uh, about uh, race. You know, there, there, there was a time where he was interested in a white woman when he was very young, like college age. He was like, hey, maybe something could happen here. Nothing ever does happen. But still, he's like, maybe I don't want to get involved in the family business. You know, his dad was a big-time civil rights guy. Uh, King himself was a little too young to be involved in World War II. Uh, he would have been a teenager during World War II, so he'd have been a little too young to be involved with it. Uh, still, his dad is kind of that older generation and King is chosen, as I said, mainly to be a spokesperson. Uh, King will be the first to tell you he's not the one doing all the organizing. In fact, that's one thing I'm going to talk to you about in this lecture, is the ones who are doing all the organizing. Uh, King is best known as a speaker, though. That's the main reason he's chosen. He's a good-looking speaker, looks good on TV. He really likes speaking. He's great with speaking. Also pretty big on nonviolence. Uh, he's very much influenced by Gandhi. Uh, Gandhi in this time period, actually I think Gandhi had died by this time period, but Gandhi was involved in the 40s and 50s, uh, basically using nonviolence to get the British out of India. Basically, King is very much inspired by this mindset. Uh, he's all about nonviolence early on. Basically, he says, make them look bad. Make them look like the only reason they could be against you is because the color of your skin. Very steeped in respectability. Uh, King lives most of his life in fear. I mean, he is bombed, he is jailed, he is attacked. Um, he gets a brick thrown at him, most famously in Chicago, which we're not going to talk about today even because it's after 65. Uh, but yeah, he, he goes through a lot of stuff, uh, really suffers for it. He, he always has this feeling that it's not going to end very well for him. Uh, he, he pretty much knows he's going to die young. Uh, he knows he's probably going to be a martyr for the cause. Um, still, that's king for you. The fact that he still goes with it is quite remarkable. This boycott lasts for almost a year. It lasts for 318 days. Uh, women are pretty key to it. Women, remember, women are the ones who mainly ride the Montgomery buses. Likewise, they're the main ones who are doing a lot of the planning and things on the ground. Uh, some women actually, some of these black women actually receive support from their white uh, female employers, uh, mainly as domestics and things, uh, mainly to help them out. You know, uh, there is a weird camaraderie, I would say, that happens in a lot of these southern cities between white women and black women, not all the time, but uh, there's a lot of studies that show that like Jim Crow, like the segregation, this, this hard segregation between, uh, you know, black and white was often facilitated by women, both black and white women who could like interact between the two spheres. And, you know, so there's, and there's also to be something that said that, you know, discrimination against women has been going on a lot longer than discrimination against black people. 
So uh, there's definitely camaraderie between women. Uh, a lot of women get involved with this, and also a lot of people are walking too. Like the fact that you're walking, you know, these uh, you know twelve miles a day to get to and from work, uh, going taking these carpools, trying to organize carpools. It's a real feat of organization. Uh, they also start getting a lot of funds because funds are limited in a place like Montgomery, which is a southern city with a fairly poor population, uh, from coming from the north from various friends and sympathetic figures. Uh, Stanley Levinson is a pretty interesting one. He's a wealthy white attorney who gets involved in this. He's a wealthy white attorney who gets very much involved with this. Um, he gives quite a bit of money to it. He's Jewish, liberal lawyer. Uh, Bayard Rustin, though, Bayard Rustin, he is a fascinating figure. He's probably the most important civil rights figure you've never heard of. Uh, Bayard Rustin is the one who does a lot of the organizing for the civil rights stuff you know about. He never gets any credit for it because of his past, and honestly, his identity is what's problematic. Uh, Bayard Rustin is... God, he is like super important in just some of the organization parts of the civil rights movement, actually planning and logistics... Uh, you know, he's also a fan of uh, Gandhi's nonviolence. Uh, he is a very interesting case, though, because he's a little bit older. I, I should also mention he's a little bit older than King. I think he's in his third, late 30s or so by this time period. Uh, all right. Bayard Rustin has two big strikes against him. Two big strikes against him as to why he's not more prominent in the civil rights movement during the 60s. Even as a, as a, in the public figure, even though he is super important, he's probably the most important Honestly, I would even argue, like, from a logistics standpoint, he's more important than King. Uh, King's very important for, like, getting the attention, doing the spanking, you know, being a good sympathetic face for the cause. But we're talking about doing the grunt work, like, getting money, getting things straight, uh, honestly doing the planning. Uh, Bayard Rustin is probably more important than King. Bayard Rustin's two strikes. Number one, he is a former member of the Communist Party. Uh, when he was a younger man, when he was a teenager and in his 20s, he got involved in the Communist Party. Uh, he would later leave the party because he said that they weren't being very good towards race. They were just giving lip service to race elements. Still, he is a member of the Communist Party, In the former member of the Communist Party. Well, he was a member in the 40s. Uh, by the time we get to the 60s, he's a former member. Uh, they're still very keenly aware of having the Communist Party and the Civil Rights Movement being linked is pretty much kryptonite for the civil rights movement. That's often a criticism of the civil rights movement. It's nothing but a bunch of, you know, those damn dirty communists trying to, trying to screw over America. The fact that you have a former member of the Communist Party, who I should also mention, is using, like, tactics from the Communist Party's playbook. Like, he's very much making economic arguments, using uh, rallying techniques, logistic techniques that the Communist Party was teaching back in the 40s as part of the civil rights movement. That's not something that's going to garner sympathy for its cause. Uh, the other reason why uh, Bayard Rustin is not really uh, highlighted is he's gay. Uh, he is a gay man. He is a gay black man who is in a relationship, a long-time relationship, with a white man much younger than him. I believe there's a decade or two age gap between him and his boyfriend lover person. Um, they're, they're together for, for decades, and actually until Rustin's death. In fact, uh, his... His his boyfriend's still alive and like maintains their house in New York as a museum. But that's something that just is just too too scandalous for uh, the civil rights movement for the sixties. 
Uh, Rustin is keenly aware that if the general public were to like learn about his his sexuality, that would destroy the entire movement. Even though he's keenly involved with it, he he is aware that he cannot be a public spokesperson for it. Even though he's keenly involved in it. Now, to be fair to Dr. King, Dr. King is no saint himself. Um, Dr. King does have affairs. That that is something that is is well documented. Uh, that is something that is not questioned. There are a lot of other things about Dr. King which are total BS. He's uh, he's not a communist. He he might you know use some communist literature from time to time, but he's definitely not a communist. Uh, God, there there's also rumors uh, perpetrated by J. Edgar Hoover that uh, you know King is you know sleeping with everybody and he's obsessed with like interracial prostitutes. That's not accurate. Uh, King does have some affairs. They're not prolific. They're not like tons of them because he's mainly too busy with the movement, but he does get involved with some. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover does know about it. In fact, J. Edgar Hoover considers King to be, quote, the most dangerous man in America. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover is a longtime head of the FBI. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover also uh, keeps a lot of files on the civil rights movement and does what he can to infiltrate them, find out information about them, and do what he can to undermine them. In fact, the FBI even sends Dr. King a letter basically saying that he needs to commit suicide or else they're going to release pictures to his wife of his affairs. Um, That is not a conspiracy theory. That letter has been declassified. Like, you can Google FBI letter to Dr. Martin Luther King and you will see the letter where the FBI pretty much straight up tells King, uh, kill yourself or else we're going to let the world know about your affairs. Uh, King's wife was was aware of the affairs, but... She kind of kept it quiet. She figured the the movement was more important. Does victory come? Yeah, victory does come after about a year-long boycott, uh, mainly because of the federal courts, weirdly enough. Uh, The town of Montgomery was pretty much dead set on keeping segregation. They don't care if the bus company lost all of its money. And by the way, the bus company was losing tons of money because most of their ridership was black and boycotting. Still, it's actually federal courts that do this. Uh, the Supreme Court actually rules in favor of the uh, of the boycotters in 1958 in the case of uh, Gale v. Broder, or Broder v. Gale, which basically overturns the Montgomery bus boycott and basically gets rid of all the convictions of Rosa Parks and other people uh, for violating the the rule. They say it's a it's a horrible thing to do. Uh, a couple months later, on December 21st, 1956, uh, the bus company finally agrees. Not only to end segregation on the buses, but also to hire black riders. Sorry, black drivers. Uh, that's another. That's another thing that they start doing is saying, "Hey, it's not enough to let us, you know, get ride the bus now. Now we want to have black drivers, so we can have more financial opportunities for African Americans." Now, the Montgomery bus boycott. If you go over one slide, it really sets the example of basically what could work. You know, this is a very grassroots thing. That's something else that ha- changes with the civil rights movement. It goes from being less top-down to bottom-up. Uh, the Montgomery bus boycott was just one town. It was just one town. You know, Yes, the NAACP was involved, but not on a national level. It's mainly the local leaders like Nixon and Parks who are doing most of the organization. Uh, this seems something that could be much more able to be emulated. Likewise, this does garner media attention. This is the first time the civil rights movement really realizes we can use this media to really spin sympathy our way. The federal courts also are providing a way, yes, even though they are you know, battling the war for public sympathy, 
it is the federal court that ultimately gets the decision. However, this is a case that came from a very local action. That being said, though, white uh, resistance starts really growing in the South. So with the success of Montgomery, uh, Dr. King and some other, you know, churchy folks, they want to start their own organization. They want to start their own organization really leaning upon, uh, like, Christianity, morality, becomes known as the Southern Christian Leadership Council, the SCLC. Uh, this is an uh, amalgamation of King, uh, some of his other preacher buddies, uh, a lot of different community organizations, mainly churches. Uh, the, the one thing you could say about the SCLC, uh, in contrast to something like SNCC or the NAACP, is just how really stinking religious it is. It is super religious. It is super, 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 super religious, uh, very steeped in Christianity, and as such, very steeped in respectability. Uh, their main focus early on is voting rights. They mainly want to make sure that African Americans get the right to vote. If African Americans can get the right to vote, there's a chance to change everything else. You know, black voters could mean black elected officials, maybe black legislatures who can propose laws that could be more beneficial for African Americans. Now, the NAACP and the SCLC do share some goals, but there is definitely some tension. All right, there's definitely some tension. Uh, the SCLC is more keen about protesting. NAACP, generally this time period, doesn't really care for too many protests. Uh, yes, they did start out, you know, boycotting and picketing things like Birth of a Nation. But by this point, the NAACP is really concerned with using the Supreme Court cases and other legal avenues. Uh, they feel that, you know, helping protesters get out of jail or bailing people out uh, really messes with the NAACP's already dwindling resources because they are the recipient of so much attention from J. Edgar Hoover and the like. Also, the NAACP is not crazy about using their resources to, you know, defend protesters. And, and by the way, the NAACP is going through some trials and tribulations uh, because of the membership being under such attack by somebody like J. Edgar Hoover, a uh, lot of purges, a lot of repression. Uh, the NAACP is often targeted by the FBI and other organizations as the main focal point for um, you know African Americans because they're having such success and such high-profile cases. Now, the Civil Rights Act of 1957 is one of those things that is, uh, you know, too little, too late. Uh, too little, too late. Uh, are just not enough, perhaps. Uh, it's, it's proposed in 1957, first time you're having real civil rights legislation since Reconstruction. Uh, you know, executive order um, that, that Roosevelt did about desegregate uh, and factories, that's not a big time one. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's not a big, big, big time one. This is gonna be much bigger. Uh, this, this bill is the one that is filibustered by Strom Thurmond for about 27 hours. Uh, Cong the, the thing that it does is that it's, okay, we're going to try to, you know, make sure that voting rights are preserved. Uh, we're going to make commissions to study voting rights violations, uh, you know, civil rights violations, uh, maybe figure out a remedy for the voting problem. Uh, the main problem is, is that there's just not a lot of teeth to it. Uh, the federal government is not really doing much enforcement. You know, yes, most people are saying it's a good idea to be doing something for civil rights. However, most of the black leadership out there is quite upset by just how little it actually does. You know, yes, you can. there's a more civil rights section in the Department of Justice, 
but that does not mean more cases are being presented and prosecuted. Uh, a lot of African Americans are kind of upset by how weak the law was, uh, mainly because it was not very well enforced by the Eisenhower administration. Uh, not quite as bad as something like the Freeman's Bureau, but not far off. Not far off in that this thing is passed, it has no teeth. It has no real teeth, no real way to make sure that the law is enforced. And the Eisenhower administration has pretty much shown we're not going to be re uh, pressing compliance all that much. Uh, that's pretty much what, what's going on with that. And, and a lot of African Americans are not very happy about this. Now, this is really coming to uh, real attention with what happens in Little Rock, Arkansas in 57. Uh, in 1957, you know, as we said, Eisenhower not really pressuring anybody to enforce civil rights. He is sympathetic towards the segregationist uh, in the sense that he's like, you know, I don't think anybody should have things shoved down their throat. If we pressure people too much, there's going to be a backlash. This backlash kind of happens. Now, the governor of Arkansas this time period is Orville Fabus. Orville Fabus, uh, he is governor of Arkansas. Of course, he is a segregationist. And uh, Little Rock is a city kind of akin to something like uh, Baton Rouge. In fact, they're, they're of comparable size. <coughs> you got southern city, southern capital city, uh, pretty sizable African-American population. And they've been trying to figure out ways to make sure that desegregation doesn't occur. However, uh, the, you know, the various black groups around Little Rock have been trying really hard to make sure that they have a respectable bunch, nine students, go to Little Rock Central High School. Uh, Central High School in Little Rock is the, the flagship school of, of the city of Little Rock. Uh, it's the best school. It's the best public school in all of Little Rock. Uh, the students they pick... I mean, it's steeped in respectability. They make sure that the students are 4.0 students. Their parents are married. They're active in church. Uh, they are very keen about, like, you know, we can't have any C students going here. Even though, hey, C students need education, too. Uh, they want to make sure that this first slate of students is the absolute best they have to offer. Now, at the beginning of the school year, Fabus uh, posts about 270 Arkansas National Guardsmen outside of Little Rock Central High School to prevent the black youths from entering. Basically, he wants to make sure that black people do not enter the high school. Now, when, when this goes through the cases, uh, basically there's a case, there's a federal order basically saying, you know, Governor Fabus has to integrate the school. He just pulls the National Guard, leaving a, the, you know, these nine high schoolers to deal with a very angry white mob who does not want them to go to the school whatsoever. Now, this puts Eisenhower in a bit of a pickle. This puts Eisenhower in a bit of a pickle because, as I said, he is sympathetic towards this, the, uh, the Southerners. Remember, he says things like, you know, nobody wants to be forced to uh, comply with civil rights or to do something that they don't want to do. He has a lot of sympathy for them. But, and you make this a big old but, he says the problem is they're not, uh, they're not listening to the U.S. government. You know, this is a federal case. This is a federal thing. And this is verging on treason. You know, if you're not going to comply with a federal order, that's a problem. You know, if it starts here, why do we fight the Civil War? So basically what Eisenhower does is he sends in the National Guard. He sends actually movements of the 101st, which is a fairly famous paratrooper division, uh, basically to defend the black students and also make sure that segregation occurred. Remember... 
Eisenhower is not a huge fan of desegregation. He's not a, you know, he does have some sympathies for both sides. But at the end of the day, he's like, you know what? You cannot deliberately thumb your nose at a federal order. This is the U.S. federal government saying it. You cannot just thumb your nose. You have to make things happen. Go over one slide. You will see a picture of uh, Elizabeth Eckerd, uh, you know, being shouted out. Uh, she's the one who actually goes by herself. Eight, uh, eight of Little Rock Nine kind of hang out together whenever they're coming in. Uh, Elizabeth Eckerd decides to go by herself. Uh, the woman behind her yelling curses at her actually becomes somewhat well known and popular. Does like a, a circuit for a while, uh, you know, uh, teaching, uh, not teaching, but like giving speeches and stuff. So she becomes famous too. Uh, so this does it for, for Little Rock. Uh, Little Rock, you know, after that, the students do make it to school. Uh, actually, by the time they get into the school, there's really not much that happens uh, because most of the students who had, whose parents are, the students themselves were the parents who had a main, big problem with black and white students going to school together. They'd already pulled their kids out of the school. So pretty much the only students left in the school were the ones who, you know, were cool with it. And they actually found that, uh, you know, despite all the talk, uh, you know, 16-year-olds, regardless of race, have a lot in common. And there's pretty, you know, like by the first day, some of the black students were invited to eat lunch with some white students. And they just talked about, you know, being 16-year-olds. And honestly, for the rest of the year, there really were no incidents within the school. Now, outside of the school, a lot of people freak out. Um, you know, the governor pretty much closes down all the public schools in Arkansas. So does the governor of Virginia, weirdly enough. So what ends up happening because of this, not because of this, but uh, in 1960, uh, some things start changing. This is when the sit-ins begin. And the sit-ins are very much grassroots, even less amount of organization. Um, you know, something like Montgomery Bus Boycott, super high amount of organization, even though it's grassroots. This has even less organization. This is not well-planned. This is just kind of done organically by a couple of students. Really led by black college students. Really led by black college students uh, these students are really accelerating the pace of change because they're going wherever. They're kind of going even smaller scale than like the Montgomery bus system, uh, doing things like counters. Now, I should mention CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, that's another civil rights organization, uh, was around during the Double V campaign. In fact, that's where they got their start. They were the ones to first really popularize sit-ins. Uh, sit-ins, however, become really much the protest movement for the early civil rights movement once he hit 1960. First major sit-in happens in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina, with students. They're all freshmen, so they're like 18, 19 years old, at North Carolina's Agricultural and Technical College. So North Carolina A&T, HBCU. They decide they want to go to Greensboro, North Carolina, desegregate the lunch counters at Woodward's Five and Dime Store, kind of like a kind of like a drugstore. Uh, weird that drugstores have lunch counters at this time period, but whatever. It's a different time. Uh, Greensboro is South Carolina. Wait, no, it's North Carolina. No, it's definitely North Carolina. Uh, I don't know. I'm changing the slide. North Carolina. Clearly North Carolina. Uh, these are four students. These, these students were members of the NAACP, but they're junior members. Uh, they're not full members. This is not, you know, big time. Uh, they do have the support of the community, but it's not really something they plan that much in advance. Uh, basically what happens is they go to this lunch counter, uh, they ask to order a meal, the, the lunch counter says, sorry, we don't serve black people. Um, they say, that's cool, we're just going to sit here and do our homework. 
the idea being is kind of passive resistance, you know, just kind of kind of annoy people. Just, you know, look, you, you make your demand, you very quietly do this. You know, you, you ask for you ask for a sandwich, they don't give you a sandwich, you say, okay, I'm just gonna do my schoolwork for a while. This goes on for a couple days. I mean, the first day it's just the four of them. The second day it's just the four of them, but then they like bring in police and the cameras. Uh, you can see right there, there's pictures of the four of them. Also kind of interesting in that picture is you have a black person serving them. Uh, not serving them, but working behind the counter. That's one of these interesting parts of this is that it's actually African-Americans who are oftentimes at the, at the forefront of, uh, you know, enforcing segregation. You know, even though a black man was working behind the counter, he was not allowed to serve black people. Uh, by the fifth day, you have hundreds of students, mainly from North Carolina A&T, but also for some local white schools. That's something we should also mention about the sit-ins. It's not just black folks, it's, 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 and it's not just black men. Even though black men get a lot of the attention from the Civil Rights Movement, a lot of black women, a lot of white women, a lot of white men, a lot of Jewish men, a lot of white, Jewish women, uh, a lot of different people from a lot of different races get really involved with this. Uh, it, it, you know, in time, this kind of spreads to uh, Nashville. Uh, Nashville, basically, after they see the success in Greensboro, uh, students of Nashville start doing the same thing, uh, staging nonviolent sit-ins. Then you have some in uh, Atlanta, some in Jackson, Mississippi. Much more places, much more different races. They really start doing this, and they start desegregating fairly quickly most lunch counters across the, across the, uh, across the country. Lunch counters around the South, they start to become more desegregated. And this really leads into uh, kind of a more organic group called the SNCC. SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, not the SNCC, just call them SNCC. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, really comes from the success of the, uh, the sit-ins. Really, really spearheaded, honestly, by Ella Baker. Uh, she's another one of these unsung civil rights heroes. Thankfully, she's getting a lot more attention now. Thank God, because she really, she really uh, deserves it. Uh, Ella Baker, basically, she's a member of, of the SELC. She organizes a conference for about 150 various college students at Shaw University, which is in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, she, she is a member of the SELC, but she doesn't like some parts of the SELC, mainly just how top-heavy it is. Uh, the SELC, because it is a bunch of pastors, uh, tends to be kind of top-heavy. Uh, not saying anything bad about pastors or anything, but, uh, you know, pastors tend to like their leadership, and they tend to, like, have, uh, I don't want to say a high opinion of themselves, but they, they tend to have such, uh, you know, they, they, they're used to getting things done. They're, they're used to getting things done their way. Not a lot of democracy element to it. Uh, Ella Baker doesn't care for that. She thinks the, you know, SNCC... Well, what would become SNCC is going to become a lot more, uh, lot, lot, lot more strong if they're more democratic. You know, if they're more decentralized, if they have much more smaller groups, they're not really, co I mean, they're coordinating, but they're not in lockstep with each other. And that's what she thinks is going to be a much stronger uh, element to it. Also, she doesn't like that it's all men in, in SELC. She's like, maybe we should get ladies more involved. I mean, she's a lady herself. Like I said, they meet at Shaw University, uh, April 15th through April 17th, uh, 13 different states, eventually does establish the, uh, of the SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, that being said, though, even though they are, have nonviolent in the name, even this early on, they said maybe we can get a little bit more militant. 
maybe get more defiant, more confrontational. That's going to be an issue when we get into later SNCC Black Power stuff. But early on, SNCC is mainly college students, a uh, lot less organized, much, much, much more grassroots than something like uh, the SCLC or certainly than the NAACP. Now, the first big protest SNCC does once they kind of uh, get together, once they decide we should make something out of this, is going to be the Freedom Rides. Uh, the Freedom Rides, it's not just SNCC, it's mainly a core thing. Uh, mainly a core thing, but SNCC does get involved with it. Some of the SNCC's membership gets involved with it. They definitely uh, support it. Really spearheaded by uh, members of CORE. This is only James Farmer, who uh, I don't really know too, too much about, but Bayard Rustin. Once again, Rustin comes up. Uh, the Freedom Rides, basically how it's going to work, is that uh, what they really want to do is CORE wants to show that the interstate highway system is desegregated. The interstate highway, that's the big new thing that uh, President Eisenhower helped build. The interstate system, you know it, you love it. I drive, you know, whenever I'm driving to Nichols, I'm on three different interstates every time. Uh, I-12, I-55, I-10. Then I have to drive on the highway through the bayou for a while. But you know the interstate, you know it. Uh, the interstate is theoretically federal, and as such, it has to be desegregated because of the rules of, that were going on this time period. Basically, members of CORE like Barrett Russell, they want to show if the if the it is indeed desegregated, uh, really in terms of facilities, particularly in terms of facilities. Now, this uh, the the initial freedom ride doesn't go too well. Uh, they actually Farmer and Russell get arrested um, in North Carolina when they get meetings of violence. Uh, however, you know, the free riots, it basically was a brutal response to it shows just how far white people were willing to go against integration. So SNCC kind of picks up the challenge of this. Basically, after the core freedom riots doesn't really go too well, SNCC really picks up the, uh, really picks up the, the mantle here. They want to be the ones to really to spearhead this. Uh, once again, it is steeped in respectability. They pick, uh, they, you know, they, they, they get a Greyhound bus. They make sure there's equal number of black and white, male and female students. Uh, they sit kind of a checkerboard, so it's black male with white male, black girl with white girl. Uh, make sure that you know there's no interracial relationships. No, you know, black man sitting next to a white woman. They think that would be uh, detrimental to the cause, detrimental to uh, the perception. Gets a lot of media coverage. The goal is they want to drive. Well, they want to ride from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans, where they're going to have like a, a, a rally at the end, basically for a, a youth rally at the end. They're going to take the interstates. They're going to stop at various places to make sure everything goes okay. Uh, uh, federal marshals are indeed provided. It doesn't help because to go from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans, you have to pass through the South, specifically the Deep South. They're harassed quite a bit. Uh, the really bad harassment goes right outside of Birmingham, Alabama, where basically uh, state troopers pull them over and then firebombs are thrown into the bus. Basically, the bus is firebombed. Uh, several people are, are beaten for it, black and white. It's not just white people on it. And the black people are not the only ones arrested. White people are too, but only black people get the recipient of the, of the, of the hurt. Uh, jo a young John Lewis was part of this as well. Uh, John Lewis, he's a congressman. He just recently passed away. Living legend. Can't say enough nice things about John Lewis. Still, you know, just the sheer brutality of it, and the fact that this is on television, or you, know, you see these pictures of, you know, Southerners using strong violence against 
you know, a handful of college kids who whose crime is sitting on a bus next to each other. Really gets pressed. Now, between 1960 and 1963, this is kind of the real high point of the early civil rights movement. Just high tide, if you want to call it. This is when the civil rights movement is really at its uh, classic apex. This is the one you're probably familiar with. Next week, we're going to talk about the one you're not as familiar with. Once we get into Black Power and Dr. King becoming more involved in the financial issues. But still, this is where it really crests, it really gets high. A lot of these leaders become really well known. Uh, the techniques are quite broad. Likewise, because it's on television, uh, a lot of everyday Americans who may, may not be, uh, you know, seeing racism every day or seeing segregation every day. Well, I mean, they, they are, but maybe not seeing black people every day. Uh, they, you know, people in the North are just really focusing about like, hey, this is what our country is really like. And also, you now have a president in Congress more willing to take action against Southern white resistance. Now, why does this happen? Well, the election of 1960. Uh, the election of 1960 is one of those turning point elections. This is pretty much the election where African-Americans go Democrat and never really go back. They never really go back to the Republican Party after the election of Kennedy. Uh, now, Jackie Robinson, I should mention, he's a lifelong Republican. You know of him, the baseball guy. Uh, he's a lifelong Republican. He doesn't switch parties until 1964 with, uh, with Goldwater. Still, he supports Richard Nixon. He says, you know what, Richard Nixon's good for African-Americans. Richard Nixon, weirdly enough, is a lifelong member of the NAACP, which is something you never would think you'd ever hear, but it's actually 100% historically accurate. Richard Nixon, uh, considered to be, you know, pretty moderate on civil rights issues, uh, theoretically, whenever Eisenhower was saying his stuff about, like, oh, we need to be moderate, Nixon was the one saying, no, 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 you need to be a bit more, you know, forthright with making sure that African Americans get equality. Now, is this, you know, just politicking on Nixon's part? Is he genuine? Probably just politicking, but still, it's something. Uh, John F. Kennedy is not known for his civil rights, all right? He's not really known for his sympathy for the civil rights movement. Um, he is very much, you know, a Democrat in this time period. Like, he's not really racist. He just doesn't really care. That being said, so, whenever uh, um, Kennedy, sorry, whenever Dr. King was arrested uh, for leading a, a protest in Atlanta, uh, Kennedy does call him as, as a candidate saying, hey, maybe when I'm president we can do something about it. Uh, the real push for civil rights within the Kennedy family was actually Robert Kennedy. Uh, Robert Kennedy was the one who he was a more bleeding heart liberal, who's much more in line with civil rightsy stuff. Uh, you're going to see as the civil rights movement goes on uh, that Kennedy is kind of uh, frustrating for most African American leadership. Uh, Kennedy says a lot of things about being in support of civil rights. He never actually really does it. Uh, now the election of 1960 super close. Uh, pretty much black voters are what kind of sways K Kennedy over the line. Uh, specifically in Illinois, uh, Illinois Democrats, uh, African Americans for a while now have been kind of growing in the Illinois Democratic Party. And basically, Illinois is super close, but that's what Kennedy wins. And basically, most African Americans feel that Kennedy owes them for getting him elected. Now, Kennedy, like I said, he's not crazy about civil rights -y stuff. He's not a huge proponent of African American anything. But he's not a real big fan of the violence of the, of the South, if that makes sense. Very wishy-washy about getting equality for African-Americans. But he is pretty fervent about the fact that he doesn't like the violence. Uh, remember, these are mainly Democrats doing the violence. Kennedy himself is a Democrat. He thinks it makes the Democrat Party look bad. 
So he issues a couple of executive orders, tries to get rid of some various housing practices that are quite discriminatory. Uh, likewise, Lyndon Johnson gets more involved with stuff. Lyndon Johnson is a weird character. Um, we'll talk about him more a little bit later because he is going to become president and he is also super involved with civil rights. Uh, Johnson is and isn't racist, which is weird. He is definitely a product of his time. Uh, Johnson is a old Southern white guy in this time period. You know, he was raised in the teens and 20s in Texas, kind of comes from a middle-classy background, not the wealthiest background, even though his dad is a state legislature. His wife, Lady Bird, is actually way, way, way wealthier. Uh, still, he he's a very much a New Deal guy, and he actually kind of has a little of a bleeding heart for African-Americans and people of other races. Uh, one of his first jobs was being the teacher of a school for migrant workers' children. Uh, there are a lot of like Mexican people, and he has a sympathy for them. Likewise, he is somewhat sympathetic towards African-Americans, believes that maybe there could be equality between the races someday. That being said, he also used the N-word all the time. Like, Johnson used the N-word a lot. Uh, Johnson didn't think that much of some African-Americans, and he would say it. And that's where it gets com- really, really complicated with Johnson. It's It's... It's overly simplistic to say he's like, oh yeah, he's a, he's a true diehard for civil rights, but it's also equally simplistic, simplistic to say, oh, he's just a, he's just a racist Southerner, uh, because he's really conflicted. I mean, yes, he uses the N-word and stuff and has kind of low depiction on African Americans, but he's also on the outs and viewed as a race traitor by the rest of the Southern Democrats, because he's like, maybe we should have voting rights for African Americans, and also maybe they should, you know, be given education opportunities. Maybe they should be given housing opportunities. Things like that. Johnson, interesting character. We'll talk about him more later. Uh, now, Kennedy would also send federal marshals. Well, specifically his brother would, Robert Kennedy, who was attorney general this time period, sends federal marshals to make sure that the state of Mississippi is integrating the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss. Uh, James Meredith is a veteran. Uh, he is a veteran of the Air Force, I believe. Uh, James Meredith is a veteran uh, because he's a veteran. His education would be paid for as part of the GI Bill. He wants to go to Ole Miss because no HBCU in his state uh, has the has the um, major he's looking for. Uh, that's another way they try to get around the whole uh, civil equal thing is uh, making sure that African-American HBCUs offered all these different courses. However, there was no school that offered what Meredith was looking for. Totally a test case. Uh, the governor of Mississippi, uh, Barnett in this time period, Bigots him from entering. Uh, basically, John Kennedy's kind of wishy-washy about it. He doesn't say anything about it. Robert Kennedy is the one who sends in the federal marshals, basically to integrate the school. Uh, the Albany movement, I should also mention, comes about in this time period. That's uh, We're talking about Albany, Georgia. This is basically uh, white resistance, white Southerners, uh, really sh- becoming a bit more sophisticated about what they're going to do. Uh, the SNCC is starting to do uh, voting drives, and basically uh, uh, of African Americans in various populations in the South. That's a pretty big problem throughout the South is that even though African Americans are eligible to vote, they vote they don't vote because they're not registered, because the registration is led by like you know white racist officials. Now the Albany movement was headed by William Anderson, and also has a uh, police chief uh, Pritchett. 
who's very, very resourceful in countering protests. Basically, you have a level of organization from the top of these various city governments to make sure that African Americans and the civil rights agitators don't get anywhere. Uh, basically, they start arresting people on and on. They start, you know, chumbering up the charges. So, oh, we're not racist. We're just, they didn't file the proper permits or, you know, all these other things that are pretty much just being racist. But they become a bit more sophisticated about it. Likewise, it's much smaller. Likewise, they're able to have a veneer of respectability about their own protest against the respectable protests of the African Americans. Uh, the Albany movement is where they start trying to out-sophisticate and also out-respect out each other. Uh, basically, oh, no, we're not racist rednecks. We're we just, you know, we're respectable. We just like the rule of law, yada, yada, yada. What ends up happening is a bit of a failure for the early civil rights movement. Uh, they announce a truce with the city, basically, because the city's done a pretty effective job in Albany, Georgia, of preventing the civil rights movement from getting anywhere there. And this is a major defeat for Dr. King because he agrees to a federal injunction preventing him from demonstrating. Uh, basically, even he has to compromise here. So now you're saying, huh, you know, white folks are becoming a little bit more sophisticated in their protest against civil rights things. So after the failure of Albany, it looks like, and it kind of looked like maybe things were stalling with the civil rights movement. Uh, 1963 was starting out to be kind of a, uh, I don't want to say a bummer year, but kind of a, you know, kind of a stalled year. Uh, thanks to the Albany movement. Looks like Southern white leadership had, you know, got, not even become more entrenched, but also become more sophisticated in their protests against the civil rights movement. And also, you have national leaders very reluctant to act. Uh, even Kennedy, who, you know, he, he, he will give lip service about, oh, I'm a great defender of the civil rights. Uh, when it came to it, he really wouldn't do much of anything. However, the, uh, the 1963 was also the centennial of the Emancipation Proclamation, and so this was kind of, you know, circled on a lot of black folks, a lot of civil rights leaders' calendars, as this was going to be the year that they're going to actually do something. They're going to do something, they're going to be bigger, get a bit more defiant than they were than, uh, before Albany. They choose the city of Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, Alabama is a very interesting uh, case. It is essentially segregated, that's not surprising. I've also mentioned that it was one of those cities that did not exist before the Civil War. Uh, it's also viewed as the most modern uh, city in the South in this time period because of the success they have in things like, uh, you know, mining and other things like that. Uh, chosen by, for the SELC is basically a campaign. They want to show basically they're not afraid of anything, uh, particularly because Birmingham was also being quite brutal uh, with police brutality. In fact, they're, uh, they're known, uh, Birmingham is known for its uh, public safety commissioner, a guy by the name of Eugene Connor. Everybody knows him as Bull. Bull Connor is a guy in charge of the police department. He's a public safety commissioner, but he's pretty much the de facto leader of the police in Birmingham. And he is known for being a brutal. A brutal. He's like, you know what? It doesn't matter. They're all a bunch of damn dirty communists. Uh, these are rabble-rousers who are trying to upset our black people. Once again, it's a long, 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 long-standing... Um, Criticism of the civil rights movement is, quote-unquote, our black people are happy. Uh, Bull Connor is also known for using dogs and excessive force. Uh, he's like, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm the guy behind this. I'm doing this for public safety, quote-unquote. Uh, he is going to lead against this as pretty much as strong as he can. Um, about 10 civil rights protesters were killed over the course of Birmingham. 
About 20,000 were protested. Uh, King is arrested fairly early on for what he's doing. And what's actually kind of remarkable about this is really the fact that King is aware of something that Bull Connor is not, and that's the prevalence of the media. Um, Connor doesn't really care too much about what the national media feels about him. He's like, you know what? This is my city. Uh, this is for Birmingham. The people of Birmingham know what I'm doing, and they know why I'm doing it. You know, it's all these outsiders that are upsetting them. Uh, King is aware of the cameras. You know, King is very keenly aware of the cameras going around. And so he tells the followers, hey, if you get punched, don't punch back. It doesn't matter if you get punched 10,000 times and you swing back once, the camera's going to capture that one time. Likewise, wear your Sunday best. You know, be completely neat, be clean, have your hair cut, your shoes shined. You know, make sure that if there's any reason somebody doesn't like you or protest against you, it's because you're black. That's what really turns the tide in the civil rights movement is, number one, just the sheer more confrontationalness of this. The fact that, you know, they're going to Birmingham, a city which is well under the thumb of Bull Connor, uh, basically saying, hey, we're not going for the easy stuff first, we're going for the hard ones. And also just the sheer prevalence of the media. That, that is one thing. Birmingham really turns what had been just kind of a southern thing into national news that you're seeing every night. You're seeing every night, you know, the dogs attacking people who are dressing their Sunday best. You know, people being shot with firehouses, billy clubs, for just protesting. You know, for being nice and neat and clean and non-confrontational. Well, I mean, they're being confrontational, but non-violent. This is pretty much what makes it a turning point. is the fact that we now have an effective method to really protest against uh, the, the, the quote-unquote respectability politics of... Uh, of things like the Albany movement. Now, to be fair, had it not been for Albany, would we have had a Birmingham? Probably not. Likewise, had it not been for Bull Connor just being, I don't give a you-know-what about what I do to brutalize African Americans, uh, sympathy might have been quite a bit different. Still, that's what happens. Uh, it is a hard-fought process. It is a hard-fought process, though. Uh, there are several, several, several protests throughout 1963, particularly in the summer, uh, throughout the South. Throughout the South, a lot of different protests, tons of different marches, uh, not just in Birmingham, but all over the South. Uh, a lot of different protests, about 800 different marches, sit-ins, protests, all throughout 1963. Like I said, 10 protests were killed in Birmingham, 20,000 arrested. Uh, probably one of the biggest known ones, probably the, not one of the biggest known ones, but like one of the more sad instances is uh, the case of Medgar Evers. Uh, Megger Evers was the head of the NAACP in Mississippi. Uh, shortly after Kennedy basically said proposed legislation for a new Civil Rights Act, uh, Megger Evers is killed in his front yard. Basically, he's returning home. He, he is par he's parked in his driveway. He's walking to his front door. Somebody comes, shoots him, kills him in his front yard as his wife and children are watching on. Uh, the sheer brutality of this murder, not sheer brutality, but just like the sheer gall, the fact that you're going to kill somebody in front of their house, in front of their kids, in front of their wife, uh, you know, basically in protest for legislation. Uh, legislation that even hasn't even gone through yet. It's literally just Kendi asking about, uh, you know, maybe we should have some legislation. Now, uh, Kennedy is only asking for legislation because a lot of civil rights leaders are very aggravated with Kennedy. Uh, they feel that Kennedy is dragging his feet for no real reason. It's, uh, yeesh. You know, they're dragging their feet. Uh, Kennedy is like, look, I'm dealing with the Russians. I'm dealing with communism. Could you 
just put things on the back burner? Can he just cool it with the civil rights bit? Supposedly, Dr. King said in response, if we got any cooler, we'd be in the freezer. Like, we can't get any cooler about civil rights. We need to make things happen. Uh, so now there's more debate about this legislation going on. And in the midst of this, in 1963, in August of 1963, that's when they broke the glass and finally had the Honest to God March on Washington. The one you know about. The one you know about is the March on Washington that happens in August of 1963. Kennedy does make that speech in uh, June, basically saying that we should have a civil rights movement, a civil rights act, I should say. Uh, this is shortly after that. That's when Medgar Evers was killed. But still, the, the dream of A. Phil Brandoff, still very much active, and Bayard Rustin, still active, but kind of behind the scenes because of his communist and gayness, uh, they finally do this whole March on Washington. The March on Washington and Jobs and Freedom, it's not just March on Washington, for Jobs and Freedom, uh, basically gathers about a quarter of a million uh, various people, black, white, whatever, uh, who come out to the National Mall. There have been bigger protests since then. Uh, I remember whenever I was in middle school, the Million Man March was a big one that was done, it was organized by Louis Farrakhan, um, basically to get uh, about a million black men together. There was other big protests, but still, this is a big one. This is the one you know about. Uh, King gives his speech of, uh, I have a dream there. It's not the first time he's given this speech. In fact, he's given the speech many, many times. He's kind of been workshopping it for quite a while. Um, he does give the speech, and it's a, it's a very, it's an amazing speech. You know it, you love it. I don't have to explain that to you. Now, another thing that happens in 1963, which is really challenging for the civil rights movement, is in November of 63, Kennedy himself is assassinated. Now, as I've mentioned, Kennedy was never a diehard civil rights guy. Uh, Robert Kennedy was, but JFK always very wishy-washy about civil rights. Always very, very wishy-washy about civil rights. Still, he is assassinated, and when he is assassinated, who becomes president but Lyndon Johnson? That's right, that Lyndon Johnson, the very conflicted Southern Democrat Lyndon Johnson, who was also viewed as a race traitor by his fellow Southern Democrats. And Lyndon Johnson really pushes this Congre uh, pushes Congress to pass this law uh, as, a, as a memorial for Kennedy. Basically, he Johnson knows he can't get it by himself. Uh, Johnson knows that he is very unpopular. Uh, Johnson knows that he rubs people the wrong way. However, he figures, you know what? If I'm able to use the memory of Kennedy, like really push his memory, say that this was his piece of legislation he desperately wanted more than any other, which is dubious, as I've explained. Kennedy was very wishy-washy on civil rights. Uh, he gets this passed. He gets this passed. Civil Rights Act is passed. Very good piece of legislation. Uh, yes, there is a filibuster that tries to go against it. Not as long as the one in 57, but still a pretty long filibuster. Uh, bans discrimination in public accommodations, schools, parks, playgrounds, and also in employment. Furthermore, things like restaurants, hotels, gas stations, entertainment facilities, libraries, all these things became desegregated. And it's going to be, it's going to have teeth in it. That's the main thing. The main reason why this is different is that Johnson is giving it some teeth. Johnson is giving it teeth. He gives the Attorney General some more power. Uh, makes the equal the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Basically, it's going to make sure the federal government is making sure there's compliance for these civil rights laws. There's actually teeth to it. There's actually funding for it as well. Now, by signing this act, by signing this act, Johnson said kind of offhandedly, I think we might have just delivered the South to the Republicans for a very long time. In a sense, he's correct. 
I mean, yes, Goldwater runs in 64 with a real, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> interesting, interesting uh, running. Uh, basically, it's a very uh, uh, warlike stance, basically saying we should probably nuke the Russians. He is able to get some southern states. It's not until uh, Nixon comes around in 68 that the South really goes hardcore Republican. And he does so, and it does so. Uh, Nixon's able to get this by not really criticizing, you know, desegregation or criticizing race stuff or civil rights, but by criticizing federal overreach, saying that, oh, it's making big government too big, stuff like that. That's what Johnson is, you know, really afraid of. And in a sense, Johnson's correct because uh, the South is very heavily Republican now, but even though, you know, only a couple years before it had been almost exclusively Democrat. Now, in the midst of this, uh, one of my favorite things to talk about, you know, if we had a much longer class period, in fact, next year, whenever we break this class into two different, you know, two semesters, I'm going to spend a lot more time on this. But the Freedom Summer of Mississippi, one of my favorite things to talk about of all time. Uh, just a fascinating thing that happens. Uh, Mississippi has got the highest black population in the country in this time period. It, it has passed South Carolina in this time period. That still is. Mississippi still has the highest African-American population in the United States. Uh, anywhere from 30 to 40% of the population of Mississippi is African-American. And there are some areas of Mississippi which are pretty much exclusively black. Uh, particularly the Delta. Uh, the Delta, that's northwest Mississippi. Uh, pretty much that is exclusively black. Pretty much uh, almost entirely black. And yet, it has some of the lowest voting registration of African-Americans throughout the entire um Entire country, honestly. I mean, only about 4% of the black population is um, registered to vote in Mississippi. Uh, way more eligible to vote, but only uh, you know only 4% uh, are, are, have registered to vote uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, sometimes people do try to vote, do try to register. They get turned away by racist state officials. But mainly, most people in Mississippi don't even try. Um, this is the primo example of, like, you know, the, the African-American population of a state being like, look, guys, we're going to have the backlash if y'all agitate too much. Still, uh, SNCC and CORE kind of come together to get involved with this. And the guy they pick is SNCC's guy on the ground, dude by the name of Robert Moses. Now, Robert Moses, I will fangirl about Robert Moses all day, every day, because uh, I've got a personal story about him, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, Robert Moses, interesting cat, originally from uh, Massachusetts. He's Harvard-educated, uh, obsessed with math, uh, obsessed with math. He's actually still alive. He's still alive. Uh, he is obsessed with math. He's an algebra guy. He's really big on math education, very soft-smoking, very religious, kind of a nonchalant guy. He gets first involved in Mississippi doing voter registration in southwest Mississippi, around Natchez, uh, that area. Not Natchez itself, but like the rural area around Natchez. Uh, which is known as, like, the most racist part of Mississippi, which, that's something when you're talking about Mississippi, uh, probably the most violent place in Mississippi. Uh, uh, early thing that happens to him there, he gets a black resident to register to vote in southwest Mississippi. On his way to the polls, this individual is shot and killed in broad daylight by the sheriff, and the sheriff is never convicted. Uh, Robert Moses is like, okay, yeesh. In the midst of this, it's also in the summer of 1964. You do have a young population that feels kind of disillusioned by uh, Kennedy's assassination. You have a lot more young people involved with it. And so basically, Robert Moses calls for an army of volunteers. 
calls for an army of volunteers to come to Mississippi to help registered people to vote. Uh, they're getting black students and white students. Actually, it's actually mainly white students from like elite like universities, like you know your Harvards and Yales. Uh, the professor I worked with, my advisor in college, was a young University of Pennsylvania student. That's a, that's an Ivy League school who came down to Mississippi during this time period, during Freedom Summer, because he was recruited, and he actually kind of liked it, and he ended up staying. Uh, he, he Well, he didn't like the racism, but he's like, you know what, I, I feel like I can make a difference here, and he worked on it, and you know, ultimately became my professor, and he's one of the reasons why I'm teaching you now. Uh, they do do, like, mock elections. They also have freedom schools, which provide education for African Americans. Uh, a lot of stuff I could talk about about this. Uh, gosh, get me in class talking about Freedom Summer. I'll tell too, too much about it. Uh, however, early on, early on, three of these civil rights workers go missing. Um, two of them are white students. Two of them are white students from outside of the state. The other one is a black student from within the state of Mississippi. They go missing around Philadelphia, Mississippi. They go missing around Philadelphia, Mississippi. Uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi is kind of near Meridian, if you know where that is. Um, east, northeast Mississippi, like like uh, midway between like Meridian and Starkville, if you know where that is. Kind of close to the Alabama border, but not too close to the Alabama border. Uh, yeah, that's Philadelphia, Mississippi. Basically, they are get, uh, these three students are basically involved. They're doing voter registration things. Uh, they get trailed by the Klan one night. The Klan basically tracks their car. The Klan makes them pull over. The Klan ultimately kills them. Uh, that's not a surprise. And they bury them in a shallow uh, pond that was being used for, uh, for, for, for cattle. It's a cattle pond. They actually tie the bodies to an old windmill to give it weight. And this, this disappearance happens very early on. Uh, they kind of discover the bodies at the end of Freedom Summer, but it's kind of something that's kind of a, underneath it is the disappearance of the three students. We'll talk about this much, much more in class because I have a feeling I'm going to go off on Freedom Summer because it's just one of my favorite topics to talk about, one that I have a, a personal interest in. Uh, not personal interest, but personal experience in. Um... Yeah, a lot of interesting things going on with that. Uh, likewise, uh, the people in Mississippi are preparing for an invasion of, was it Jews, N-words, and communists? They thought that basically they were going to be taking over the entire uh, state. Uh, also, you do have a lot of African Americans in Mississippi who were not fans of this. They're like, these young little whippersnappers, these little white boys are going to come in, they're going to ruin things for us for a couple months, and then they're going to go back to you know Harvard and Yale, and we're the ones who are going to get the backlash. Uh, throughout the state, and by the way, it's not just black and white people mobilized throughout the state. Uh, not just black people, black and white people, and also outside of the state. But throughout the summer, 30 homes, 37 churches were bombed, uh, 35 civil rights workers were shot at, 50 were beaten, 6 were murdered, uh, the, the main ones being those big three, and more than 1,000 were arrested. Still, you do have kind of a bit of a success with the uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Uh, they want to get involved with the Democratic uh, Party's nomination uh, for the 64 election. Uh, basically, whenever they held the Democratic National Convention, uh, Mississippi sends a second delegation. Well, the Mississippi some Freedom Democratic Party does. They send a separate delegation of black voters uh, led by Fannie Lou Hamer. 
Uh, Family Lou Hamer, she was a sharecropper. She was, you know... It's currently shut up, Siri. I don't know why Siri went on there. Uh, you know, she, she gets involved with this. She does a lot of speaking. Uh, basically, what ends up happening at the convention is a whole bunch of compromises. Uh, doesn't really make anybody very happy. Some snake people are pretty happy. Kind of ends with a bit of an anti-climax. I mean, in a sense, yes, but no for Freedom Summer. Uh, their initial goals of getting black people registered to vote. A lot of black people do register to vote. Uh, setting up schools. They do set up some schools. They are temporary. Uh, still, there are a lot of things that don't change about Mississippi. It's still quite racist after this time period, uh, despite the be best efforts of people like Bob Moses. If you go over one slide, you'll see a picture of Fammy Lou Hamer. Um, let me tell you my Bob Moses story really quick, because I love this story, and I'll probably tell it again in class, because it's one of my favorite things that ever happened to me. Uh, so I mentioned my professor in college. Uh, he was a Freedom Summer guy. And he was friends with Bob Moses. He, you know, they, they knew each other. They worked together back in 64. And uh, anyway, so one day, uh, I'm, I'm pretty close with this professor. Uh, you know, I, 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 was, I was a history major. I was president of, like, the history major club. You know, I was, I was a pretty good history student. If you haven't noticed, I, I know a lot about history. In fact, I'm a professor now. And so, like, I was pretty cool with him and cool with his wife. And some friends and I, some other history majors, would occasionally go over to his house to, like, have food and stuff like that. You know, have meals because... Uh, Dr. Logue worked, lived pretty close to the, to the college. And so one night he's like, Hey, Hey Stuart, I want you to come over to my, uh, come over to my house for dinner, which was not unusual, uh, because my friend Bob's coming over and, um, you know, my friend Robert's coming. Oh yeah. He called him Robert. Uh, no, they called him Bob. He was like, my friend Bob's coming over. And, uh, you know, I, just, I, I think he might have a lot to talk with him about. And I was like, okay, cool. At the time period, I was uh, thinking about going to law school. So I figured, you know, Bob must be some sort of a lawyer guy. Whatever. So I, I go to Dr. Logue's house. It's me and another friend of mine, uh, the, the vice president of the history club. And we're like, hey, how's it going? You know, and, and we meet Robert. He's this older black gentleman. He's like, hey, how's it going? I'll never forget the first question he ever asked me. He's like, hey, do you prefer decimals or radians? I was like, what, what the hell kind of question is that? Decimals or radians? I'm like, I, I, I guess decimals, I suppose. He's like, man, yeah, you don't get it, man. You know, it's just you, you young kids. He's like, I know you're young because you don't see the beauty in radians. Because like radians, it's just more, it's a more elegant way to do it. And this guy goes off about math for like an hour. Like two hours, I'm at dinner, you know, I'm eating with Dr. Logue and Miss Logue and Robbie and then this Bob guy who's just talking about radians and talking about math. And he's like, when did you take math? I was like, I took math in eighth grade. He's like, see, I work with the black schools around here, you know, a lot of the black schools, because pretty much Jackson City Public Schools are pretty much exclusively black now, uh, still to this day. It's about 97% black, uh, the Jackson Public Schools. He's just going on and on about like, yeah, you know, I do this math tutoring and I'm making sure that kids get algebra and my website is algebra.org. I'm like, this is a, this is a, this is a, this. I was like, I was confused. I was like, why did Dr. Logue really want me to come over to meet this Bob guy? I, I don't care anything about math. He's just goofing on radians. I mean, you know, I, I'm okay with tutoring because I thought he was going to ask me to tutor, but I know nothing about math. So it's like uh, this Bob guy, if he's expecting me to like tutor for him and he was a nice man. And so he's talking. It's more like an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours in. And I, I'm confused. We, we've made it past the salad course and the soup. And, like, we're, in the, we're well into the main dish now. And, and he mentioned something. Dr. Logue mentioned something offhand about Stokely. And, and Bob's like, oh, yeah, Stokely. What a guy. Do, 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 do. I'm like, wait, Stokely? And I was like, holy, wait, Stokely Carmichael? And he's like, yeah, of course, Stokely Carmichael. And that's when I put two and two together. Bob was actually Robert Moses. And I was like, holy crap. People, 
I fangirled out harder than I've ever fangirled out in my life before. I was like, holy jeez, this is Bob Moses. This is the Bob Moses. This is like contemporary to like all the great civil rights heroes, living legend, still alive, nice guy. Um, I, I always try to get him to Skype into this class, but he's never able to. I guess he can't figure out that. He's like 90 now, so I'll give him a break on that. But uh, yeah, no, nicest dude on the planet. And I guess because like I listened to him about radians for God knows how long, he kind of indulged me and he's like, fine, you know, you want to ask stuff. <laughs> Guys, I fangirled out so hard. I asked every, like, civil rights question I could think of. I asked about what all these people were actually really like. You know, what was it like to do this, that, and the other. Like, he, he, you know, of course he talked about getting arrested and stuff and talked about how crap. He did not like Natchez, I'll tell you that. But he also, like, you know, he told me funny stories about Dr. King. And uh, apparently Dr. King was the funniest person alive. He said, nobody can make me laugh like Dr. King. Like, whenever, like, the cameras weren't around, like, apparently the dude was hilarious. And also... He was like, but he never seemed to have his wallet whenever the check came. I was like, you know what? That's on you, Bob Moses. You're a civil rights legend, too. If you want to say that about Dr. King, whatever. Um, I'm sure he had, you know, perfect other reasons not to have his wallet. But he was like, yeah, that guy still owes me, like, you know, $25 for a meal or something. I was like, I, I would probably just let Dr. King keep it. But whatever. So that's my Bob Moses story. I always have to tell it. Uh, still, uh, Selma does happen. Selma does happen. Uh, Selma, you know it, that's, that's the John Lewis march, that's the one that John Lewis really starts planning. Uh, basically they want to march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, because they figure out that the voting, sorry, the Civil Rights Act of 64, uh, doesn't do enough about voting. Uh, a lot of these African American organizations are really concerned about voting as a guarantee for civil rights. Basically, uh, SCLC is the one in charge of this one, this was very much a, uh, uh, John Lewis one. Uh, basically, they try to march across the bridge in Selma. State police and other law enforcement is waiting there. They beat the crap out of him. Uh, John Lewis gets his head cracked. It's all on camera. This is straight up loose brutality. There's no way that the Alabamians can spin this. They just look awful about it. Uh, in response to this, uh, President Johnson proposes new legislation, the Voting Rights Act. This one is not... Done with the legacy of Kennedy, this is all. This is 100% all um, LBJ. And basically, it gets passed. It gets passed, giving the U.S. Attorney a lot of, sorry, the U.S. Attorney General, a lot of power to make sure that voting rights are not impeached, are not interfered with. Uh, is this still a politically active thing? Yes, it is, shockingly. Uh, this is one of those pieces of legislation that at the time people thought was a great piece of legislation. Nobody would ever think it's criticizable. Uh, people do criticize it. In fact, there's talk about maybe we should renew it. Maybe we shouldn't renew it. Uh, when John Lewis passed away this past year, they're like, we should pass the Voting Rights Act and like make it a permanent one. Uh, because this Voting Rights Act said it wasn't going to be permanent. It was just going to be in place until it's um, no longer needed. In the 80s, Reagan and other Republicans said that it was no longer needed. And so they got rid of it. And now they're saying, no, we do need it. I mean, you can talk about what's going on in Georgia. In fact, I would like for you to talk about what's going on in Georgia in class where they talk about this. So, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff going on here with that. A lot of things we could definitely talk about. I think number one, I will see, um, I do like this, 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 uh, this one slide here. I think this picture really gives it justice. Uh, you see the percentage of the black population who registered to vote before and after the Voting Rights Act. And you can see across the board it shoots up. Uh, this is not the population of the state. It's of the black population of the state, basically those who are eligible to vote. 
Um, but you can see it goes from like well under 50% in all these states to well over 50% in most of these states. Not all. Uh, weirdly enough, like North Carolina doesn't really go that high. Neither does South Carolina. That's weird. Uh, Tennessee, weirdly enough, is also very high. Not sure why that is. But look at Mississippi. Mississippi is probably the most dramatic. You go from 5% of the black population being able to, uh, registered to vote to 60% of the black population. Or Arkansas, 37% to 81%. Fairly high percentages across the board. Definitely a signifier of success. Uh, in conclusion, this is kind of the midpoint. All right, guys? Ordinarily, this is probably where your history of the civil rights movement ended. Yeah, probably right here. Voting Rights Act is passed. Uh, civil Rights Act is passed. You know, hooray for that. We have two Brown decisions uh, in legal segregation. White resistance is coming about, but by God, you know, Dr. King walked around and he had a dream. Problem is, there's a second half. Because when Dr. King is killed, when Dr. King is killed, and by the way, he's going to be killed only a couple short years after this, he's one of the most hated men in America. And in fact, there are polls that show he is the most hated man in America. Likewise, uh, black power comes about. Uh, the civil rights movement kind of loses... It's non-violence and non... Well, they, they're good for confrontation, but you get a little bit more you know, black power, a little bit more defiant, uh, a bit more of a younger generation who's not as willing to, cons, you know, to be conciliatory. Yes, the federal government is getting more involved in civil rights actions, but as you can see, there's a lot of steps forward and several steps back. But that will do it for this very, very long, but I think it was quite good, uh, lecture. So, you know, maybe... Break this up into a couple ones. I think you're okay. So for History 311, Dr. Tully saying have a good one.